0: Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join
1: this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in the Shenandoah Valley, Harrisonburg, Virginia, a wonderful church. And if you ever find yourself driving north or south along Interstate I-81, and it happens to be a Sunday morning around, oh eight thirty a.m. or 11.15 a.m., stop in, worship with us. We'd love to meet you. It's the best church in the state of Virginia and possibly all along the Mid-Atlantic Corridor. How about that for an introduction? And then Carl Truman's with us also. But no, <laughs> I, my, uh, my 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 friend Carl Truman, who is a professor um, at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, my church knows Carl because not only has he spoken and preached at my church, we also, uh, I also just ha- t- taught a, a Sunday school class, Carl, working through the um uh the dvd curriculum that uh, uh you and uh crossway worked together to produce for uh, your book uh, strange new world and and you'll be pleased to know we had to have the class in our sanctuary carl so great was the uh was the demand i even had some <laughs> high school seniors uh sitting in there and so um did yeah, they stay it, awake uh, they did they did wow. i think wow. it had more to do with me than you Mm. but that's debatable i will also say this um as of the recording of this particular episode i think let me see we're in we're in first week of june i think um had a family visiting our our church sunday who've just recently moved to the area from houston texas as in like the last week or so oh and they were they're members of fred greco's church and they uh uh, they met you when you recently did a a conference oh, down okay. there with uh, cool. with with the, um, uh, Fred and and Richard Harris's church. Where and I so, wore my
0: famous rainbow sweater. You wore the rainbow sweater LGBT to lecture
1: on LGBTQ <laughs> issues, and so I do remember that. And and there is, I mean, I, I think you're aware of this, although you stay away from social media. I just want you to know there is a rather. Vigorous public discussion that goes on about some of your colorful fashion choices. i I, I won't get into all the details, but but there's there's a lot of, a lot of public speculation about that, Carl. I mean, are there any do do you have any statements you'd like to make about some of your colorful fashion choices?
0: Uh, it, it, m- most of them come from what my kids call uh, my wife playing J Crew roulette. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she goes. She goes to J Crew, <laughs> finds what's on the uh, the bargain uh, shelf, and then buys it. And makes me wear it. So it's a kind of, <laughs> from my perspective, complete gamble. I, I, if there is such a thing as color dyslexia, I have ah, it. I never I know which color combinations go together. So I trust my wife always. Mm. To, uh, to put my clothes t- together for me. And I tend to wear white shirts because yeah. I, I, I know that anything goes with the white shirts. So oh, I see. I don't okay. have to worry. Though uh-huh. I have branched out into light blue shirts just recently. Oh, I see.
1: Well, I, I sent you, Um, I, I was preaching at a church Um, in uh, in Leesburg, Virginia, not long ago. And uh, the pastor there always preaches in a suit. And so I wore a suit that morning, but I did, I did send you a photo of, of my new, um black uh, wingtip uh, brogues um that i, I had and you were happy was, to see me those. Gra-
0: i was glad to see that you finally bought what i would describe as a pair of shoes yeah or yeah. what you would say
1: were a smart pair of shoes uh, very smart uh, pair of shoes those I wings did. will fly yeah and uh so anyway and and could it also be in terms of your colorful choices that you come since you come from such a gray and smoggy island is it just that there's something in the English that say we have to make up for it by by, by our colorful wardrobe? It could be. It's not
0: smoggy so much as foggy. Overcast, uh, foggy, foggy and overcast. Foggy, yeah, that's we a don't have word. so much
1: pollution, but we have a lot yeah. of precipitation.
0: Okay. So it could could well be. Could well okay. be. Uh,
1: well, I, I offer this up to all of those who've had questions. Now you have insight. And and as far as J. Crew goes, I just want to make this known: um, if you weigh over say 190 pounds, just don't even bother shopping. At J. Crew. They don't make anything for the row for the more robustly figured uh, male. Um, uh anyway, so that, that's that's all the practical help we can give you. On to now more sublime things. Carl, we want to talk a little bit today about John Owen, about the doctrine of justification. Um, you wrote a foreword to a book about um John Owen, and I think particularly dealing with his you know, doctrine of, of justification. Um, and so this is what I want to do first. You, you've also written a, a book about John Owen. You, you, you've routinely recommended Owen's works. Uh, it, it's not uncommon for me to meet a Christian or somebody in my church, you know, they'll hear an Owen quote or something like that. And they know that, you know, John Owen, you know, the, probably the, the, the most erudite theologian of the Puritan era and so they think, well, hey, I ought to be reading John Owen. I've read, you know, I've read John Bunyan. I've read, um, you know, Richard Sibbs. I'll read John Owen. And they come away absolutely overwhelmed um, because Owen is not the easiest mm. guy to read. Um, so, but, but but nevertheless, he's, he's worth the effort. Um, I saw that Crossway is uh, re-releasing his collected works in these beautifully bound volumes. And so he's going to be getting more. Uh, attention again in circles that you and I are associated with. If you were, if somebody were to say, hey, I keep hearing about Owen. I know he must have great value. I've struggled to read him in the past. Um, where would be a great place for me to begin um, sure. reading Owen that might not be quite as hard as other places? Where would you send Good, good question. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, I think one of the things to read,
0: to help you read Owen is not actually Owen. Uh, I would say J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which draws a lot yes. on Owen, is very good for giving you the a, a good, clear, simply laid out kind of framework for Owen's mm-hmm. theology. Uh, Secondly, I think Banner of Truth produced these rather nice. They call them. Pure, they used to call them Puritan paperbacks. And paperbacks. They still do them. Yes. Which are short Puritan works, and often they tinker with the. You know, they update the English a bit, so you, you, right. you, you retain the basic substance, but the basically it's gone through an editing process that makes it easier for the modern palate.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so that would be another place to go. Then if you're, if you're sort of ready to dive into Owen yourself, I think the classic place to start is actually the place that J.I. Packer recommends, uh, the Banner of Truth edition, the, the old big edition that will presumably be supplanted by the Crossway edition, but the mm-hmm. Banner of Truth edition, uh, the volume, uh, volume number six, which collects together Owen's works on mortification of sin and on indwelling sin. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the the most straightforward texts of Owen to begin with. They're also very, very practical. Uh, Once you've read those, then I would move perhaps to uh, volume one and volume two of those works where he deals with Christology and the the doctrine of Christ in a a very devotional way. Now, of course, once you're reading Owen in the original, English prose style has changed dramatically. Right in the 400 years since Owen was writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, and Owen was a man who would have been as fluent in Latin as English. So his his English <laughs> is very Latinate, long periodic sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, tip that I got from, I think I read it somewhere in J.I. Packer was that some of the sentences can be hard to grasp.
1: Yeah,
0: Read them out loud. Mm. The thing about these sentences, these great long periodic sentences, they often have a rhythm. That makes their meaning clear, and if you read them out loud, then the rhythm itself Mm -hmm. will help you to understand what's being said. So, start off J.I. Packers Knowing God, read that to give you the sort of the big vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, Puritan paperbacks, they number of volumes of text in there, and then volume six of Banach, and I think actually, volume six. Some of the some of the treatises on sin were published as a paperback with a, a foreword, I think, by Justin Taylor from Crossway some years ago. I so think you're right. Be able to get uh, a nice Kelly Capic Justin mm-hmm. Taylor volume that has has taken out the key text and right. you know, even you know we all know even the font can make a difference in reading. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and you know, reading Owen with a with an updated font can add to the clarity of, mm-hmm. of what he's saying.
1: What is um. Why is Owen still relevant today? Why is it a good thing, yeah, to keep him around and to try to continue to still read him and grasp him?
0: Yeah, I think not. You know, most of us who operate theologically are very much people of our times. You know, the sermons that you preach, the articles that I write, Todd, mm-hmm. uh, even maybe the books that I write—they mm-hmm. they, they speak to a particular time. I mean, I was. I was just revised The creedal Imperative for a second edition next year. It was amazing to me how, how many little bits I had to change in that because they were very much specific to things that were going on around about 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to make the book relevant today, I, uh, some sections had to be changed. I mean – The new perspective on Paul, for example, is not dominating the headlines today as it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. But there are some theologians and there are some works of theology in the history of the church that in some sense demonstrate such a profound understanding of Scripture and such a profound understanding of God and such a profound understanding of the human condition that they transcend their era. Mm -hmm. they're very clearly tied to an era, but they transcend it. I would say Augustine's Confessions, for example. You read Augustine's Confessions. Sure, it's set in the the latter part of the fourth century. But when you read about Augustine's struggles, the distance between my struggles and Augustine's struggles is very small. Mm
1: -hmm. I can Mm -hmm.
0: read and learn from his struggles. Uh, I would say uh, John Calvin's Commentaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of all commentaries produced during the Reformation, Calvin is the man who seems to get in some ways closest to the text with the least amount Mm -hmm. of accretions from the world around, which still make his his commentaries useful today in a way that Martin Butes' commentaries, great as they were in their day, they're not read today. They're, Mm -hmm. They're not as useful. I would say John Owen on the theological front and on the practical theological front is one of those men whose works, not all of them, but many of them, transcend the immediate day in which they were written. You read Mortification of Sin. He's not talking in terms that make it alien to somebody who isn't a 17th-century white male living in England. He's talking in terms that any Christian believer can grasp. Now, some of his illustrations, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be outdated. um, And and, and some of the the polemics in which he engages on occasion are going to be outdated. But the core of what he's writing is, perennial Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. This is a man who has such a grasp, I think, of the Christian faith that when he speaks on general topics affecting the Christian faith, what he says has significance beyond the moment in which he writes it. You
1: know, it's interesting, as we've been dealing with, um, really in earnest since 2018, the the issue of um, the moral status of sinful sexual desires, you know, a discussion that's ramped up because of yeah. the advent of revoice in 2018. One of the things that's been interesting is that some of the more thoughtful um, engagements, uh, critical of of revoice theology, for lack of a better term, I, I've seen some guys um, a- appeal to, to Owen on sin and temptation a number of times, quite helpfully, um, to engage the current debate and it's really kind of demonstrated the fact uh what wh- what you just mentioned in terms of um, how he wrote about sin how he wrote about the nature of temptation um the sinfulness of of even unbidden uh, temptations uh, that come from within his his helpful distinction helping us understand the difference between um, temptation from without and temptation from within I, I've seen some some really fine appeals to Owen um uh, to uh, to answer back, to this now most recent um theological controversy that we've been in. So that that's been an example I've seen of of the of the lasting relevancy. Yeah. Um, of going. Uh,
0: and there's a good general lesson there, I think, for Christians in general, that you know, if you produce good faithful theology, it carries from generation to generation. Right. We don't always need to be producing bespoke theology to address right. the issue. Now there are you know, even with the the, the you know homosexuality, same sex attraction thing, there are nuances that each right. age will throw up. For example, and you know, we've talked about this before. You know, I don't think that we need to change the Westminster Confession, and you don't think we need to change right. the Westminster Confession to deal with the issue of homosexuality. Right. On the other hand, a study paper produced by the mm-hmm. denomination helping pastors understand how to apply that teaching in a pastoral context and talk to people about it. That could be very helpful. Every generation has its own distinctives that require the church to be the church of today, not the church of 300 years ago. But when it comes to core theology, and there, you know, when you're talking about sin, what Owen is really doing is exploring the anthropology and psychology of fallen human beings. That doesn't change from generation to generation. Right. uh you, you know the 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 framework that Owen has where you know if if the temptation comes from within, then that's your fallen human nature and that's something right. that you need to repent of,
1: right. you
0: know no guy, you know you could switch on your computer and, and a pornographic image pops up out yeah. of nowhere. you know, you've gone to a site that seemed legit. That's not sinful, right for you to see that. yeah, what is sinful is for you to be attracted to that and to stay on that website
1: mm-hmm.
0: yep. and i think those kind of distinctions are very very useful
1: mm-hmm. and one of the things we've seen in this recent debate is is uh e- even pastors in my my own denomination the pca have said uh first of all some of them have denied the distinction between temptation from without and from within or they they've seemed not to understand that that distinction but also going so far as to say that um that temptations that arise from within us because they are quote unbidden uh we have no um moral culpability in that as though um and and I and I I've, I've talked with PCA mm. pastors who have said we cannot repent for our fallenness mm. and of course Owen would have disagreed with that
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely! I mean, that's very interesting notion of personhood that seems to uh-huh. to underlie that. You know, are you still you when you dream? For example, when <laughs> right. you're asleep, you know, there, you know, yeah. To my mind, it's firing off in all kinds of different anthropological directions that don't just touch on sin, but seems like, you know, you're getting towards a pretty incoherent notion of what it means to be a person, right? About arguing in
1: those, yeah, terms. exactly. Well, uh, Owen on on justification. So Owen yeah. comes along um, a generation after, yeah uh the the the, the reformers he comes along at a very important time very yeah. tumultuous time um in england obviously um with uh all kinds of conflict uh, politically yeah. and ecclesiologically um and in terms of, of 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 his work on soteriology broadly justification uh specifically what does he contribute that's That's so lastingly worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I mean, like like a lot of great theologians, what he contributes is not so much new ideas. Yeah, right. As his ability to pull things together and express them in a a in an elaborate but clear theological scheme. Mm -hmm. Now, justification, of course, is Luther famously says, "It's the article of the standing or falling of the church." I, I think as with most things luther says we have to take that with a pinch of salt
1: yeah
0: uh, on the grounds that there are a lot of articles on which the church must absolutely you know, the do, you know, the doctrine of the trinity would be mm-hmm. another one you, you know you could have a which doctrine which comes of even before justification yeah. so uh, but but i think what you know the best way to understand what luther's saying there is this is a very 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 important doctrine yes. so and it becomes something of the the hallmark of of the reformation mm-hmm. uh, really if you go back to the early Reformation, the battle is not so much over justification. Justification lies behind the battles. Mm-hmm. The battles present themselves as struggles over authority and sacraments, really. Right. Justification emerges as the sort of the, the foundational underpinning in yep. some
1: ways of these other right. issues, and, and partly so, wouldn't you say, because the Church of Rome anathematized uh, the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, you well, know, that it, certainly raised the temperature on the debate, I would Yeah,
0: imagine. it does that at the Council of Trent, of course. Yes. I mean, one of the interesting things that I I, I always love what seeing the students faces when I talk about the Reformation say, you know, Luther could not have been heretical on justification in 1520 because the church <laughs> has no position on Yeah, uh, yeah. Which blows their minds in a number of different ways. It makes them rethink what they mean by heresy. It makes them think about the authority of the church. But, no, uh, the church repudiates Luther's position yep. essentially, he decides right. no, this is not a a legitimate doctrine to hold within the bounds of of the the, the what we would call the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to to uh, Owen, of course, the the battle isn't so much for Owen between Protestants and Rome, uh, which is where it was by and large, for, for the, the first couple of generations of the reformers. By the time you get to the middle of the, the 17th century, Rome is not a great threat in England. It's not a pressing threat for, for, for Owen. Um, what you've really got in Owen's world is, is, is chaotic variations of the Protestant doctrine of justification. Mm-hmm. Um, we could put it somewhat simplistically and say that you have, you know, there are two ways that the doctrine of justification in Protestantism tilts uh on the one hand it tilts towards an antinomianism
1: mm-hmm. uh, what is
0: antinomianism that's the idea that hey if you trust in the lord jesus you know at its crudest level you can behave in any way you want to behave right and that's definitely an issue in the sort of 1640s 50s uh, 60s when when uh, owen is operating because you have a lot of sectarianism in england at that time uh so there's the antinomian tilt and that of course has been the perennial catholic criticism of justification right. from the beginning if you hold to this doctrine that you are justified by the imputation right. of god's christ righteousness not the impartation but the imputation
1: right of of and, it to you. and pause right there and yeah. tell us carl the important distinction between those two things i was having a conversation yeah. with somebody just the other day yeah who had confused Imputation and impartation. Yeah. What's what's the point there?
0: And and it, it's an interesting confusion because some of the early Protestants are not clear on, right. on it. But imputation is essentially the idea that something is we, we could this way, is credited to you right. that does that does not inhere within you. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh when in a court of law a man is declared n- guilty of a crime, mm-hmm. uh the declaration doesn't add anything to him. Mm -hmm. It's a statement about the status with which he is subsequently to be treated. Mm -hmm. And same with not guilty. The man doesn't biologically change, but -hmm. he now has a different status under the law and within society. Imputation is like that, that when we are declared righteous by Christ... By Christ's righteousness, it's not that you know, Christ's righteousness is painted onto mm-hmm. us or injected into right. us.
1: It's declarative.
0: It's declared. We we now have a different status to that which we mm-hmm. had before. Again, one might think of uh, think about uh, England, Britain joining the Second World War uh, when the King declared war on September the third, nineteen thirty nine. The biology of the people of England mm-hmm. didn't change. Their status did, though. Suddenly, they were really at war with Germany, even mm. though if you'd been looking at them as the king made that announcement, you wouldn't have seen any physical yeah. change to them. Impartation is much easier to grasp in sense, right. and that means given to you. Uh, righteousness that you know Catholics would argue that, that justification is on the basis of Christ's imparted righteousness mm-hmm. taken in through the sacramental system and while, while I think a, a Catholic would object to me using this terminology because it considered rather crude and simplistic if you think about that as, a, as almost a physical change now mm-hmm. I, I know Catholic friends would would push back on me and say no Truman, you're distorting what you right. say but if you think of it as a kind of substantial mm-hmm. you know taking in of of Christ's you know, actual being and it transforming you, you're getting close to the idea right. of impartation there. Right. Uh, and where it comes down to, of course, where it becomes practical importance is, what's the grounds of your confidence before God? Right. The Protestant can have confidence before God because he already has the perfect righteousness of Christ imp- mm-hmm. imputed to him. Whereas a Catholic, it's, it's justification becomes a kind of process right. And it's the status of one's actual righteousness in that process that will become the basis for justification.
1: In in a sense, I'm justified by my transformation.
0: Yeah. And, and it's why purgatory makes sense within the Catholic exactly. framework because nobody dies. You, you have before. to you have to have purgatory if you're a Catholic. Yeah. You have to be further transformed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um uh, and so that's the difference in imputation and impartation. Yeah. So look Owen on the one side is facing off against the antinomians on the other side he's facing off against what we we would call neonomians and by the way mm-hmm. it's important to realize that no neonomian and no antinomian will accept the title these are <laughs> <That's right. laughs> these are polemical <laughs> ways of sort of demonizing these positions right but somebody like richard Baxter might be regarded as a mm-hmm. neonomian because he he has this complicated understanding of justification which seems to come Kind of smuggle impartation back yes. in in some way, and what Owen does is he offers a very precisely calibrated and expressed classical doctrine of imputation mm-hmm. that seeks to avoid uh, anti by impressing upon. Uh, by impressing on the, the the transformative nature, if you like, mm-hmm. of what happens when the Holy Spirit unites somebody to Christ, they are also transformed. That's not the basis of their justification, right. but to be in Christ and to have the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. does have an impact. Absolutely. On and on the other hand, uh, you know, and by doing that sort of warding off the antinomian criticism, the antinomians, and on the other hand, still maintaining a very strict notion that the grounds for our justification remain the external righteousness of Christ imputed to us.
1: Right. So,
0: avoiding a kind of Mm neo-nomianism at the same time.
1: Now, the Reformers and then the Puritans who followed, um, they had keen – pastoral concerns and yeah. and there's so much good pastoral writing that came out of yeah. not just the not not just the reformers but the puritans yeah um these these were churchmen these were men who uh, ministered to people many of whom weren't literate you know even a man who, uh, with the with the intellectual capabilities of john owen nevertheless was grounded in the church and no do- yeah. doubt would have would have taught and 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 preached uh to people that uh, that would have not had nearly his education. Yeah. Um, so like all of the Puritans, he had pastoral concerns. And for him, the doctrine of justification, getting justification right um, was a matter of course, of the glory of God was at stake, but also the good of God's people. He understood that there were clear pastoral implications to this. Did he not
0: Yes. And I think one of the things that the the Protestant doctrine of justification does is it moves more towards the center of Christian experience, what I would describe as normative assurance. Mm -hmm. The the confidence that that one is indeed beloved of God, that one is indeed on the way to heaven. Now, all Christians, I think, understand that that is not the universal experience of all Christians all the time, and this right. is one of the. This is where the seventeenth century. There's some wrestling with with the issue of assurance because, in the Reformation, there seems to be this confidence that all Christians will will be assured. It's a little bit more nuanced than that, but there mm-hmm. does seem to be this. Uh, on the other hand, one wants to avoid. One wants to acknowledge, therefore, the reality that Christians can go through the dark night of the soul. We can go through periods where God seems very distant and we're not sure of our own status. On the other hand, we want to avoid the kind of bondage that comes from just being terrified of God. Uh, The New Testament has this beautiful assurance. You know, Paul writes with great assurance. He seems to expect the people he's writing to, to have this joy. And so one of the things that the Protestant doctrine of justification does, as Owen carefully articulates it, is it makes assurance normative, while still allowing that in Christian experience, there may be periods of time, sometimes prolonged periods of time, mm-hmm. where God seems very distant and the soul seems seems very dark. So you're absolutely right, Todd. Mm-hmm. These are these are men deeply embedded in the life of the church and ordinary Christians.
1: Yeah. Um, one last thing, and this is just kind of anecdotal. I've I've heard this. I, I want it to be true. Um, before you kind of wrap us up and tell our our folks where where they can get a copy of this book, but um, uh, Owen and John Bunyan were were contemporaries. They were also very different. Uh, uh, Bunyan was a was a, a tinker and a and a poor man um did not have uh the kind of education uh that that John Owen had um and and I've read and help me is it true that that Owen would would at times go and, and listen to Bunyan preach and very much loved his his preaching yeah
0: the evidence suggests that uh, Owen uh, did admire John, uh, John Bunyan's preaching. And yeah. indeed, there's a comment, and it may be yeah. anecdotal, but there's a comment to the effect that he would have given up his learning yes. to say, you know, for a portion of yeah. the Tinker's ability to preach. Um, yeah. You know, Bunyan is another you – know, where does he you – know, he's one of those freaks of nature. <laughs> you know, where does exactly. he come from? You know, basically, he should be illiterate, and yet right. he writes a masterpiece of the English literature you know, Exactly. Uh, Poon's Progress Part One, I think, is worthy to stand with yeah. any other piece of yeah. English literature produced in the 17th yeah. century. And yet he was a so, man yeah. who was
1: out making his living, you know, hammering horseshoes mending, and that mending kind of pops. thing. Yeah. Right. And, going to, and spending significant,
0: two significant periods in prison, of course. Exactly. One much longer than the other, but a remarkable, remarkable mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. being. So. Yeah. Well, hey, Todd. It's been a great pleasure yeah. having me on as a guest. I, you know, uh, I, you can, can come, come by anytime you Lord. like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say uh, like uh, we Emma, Emma that we had on the other week that this is the greatest moment of my entire life. Yes. What can I say? It was okay. It uh, was all right. Yeah, you 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 were gentle <laughs> with me. So, uh,
1: No gotcha moments.
0: No gotcha moments. For anyone listening, if you're interested in reading Owen on Justification, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter for an opportunity to win a copy of an edition of that that's been published by Reformation Heritage Books with a preface uh, by myself. Uh, While you're there, please consider making a donation to the Alliance uh, We do depend upon uh, donor revenue in order to uh, keep the lights on, so to speak. Uh, Otherwise, it's been a great pleasure to be with you. It's always a pleasure for me to uh, chat to my friend, Todd. Indeed. And we look forward to being with you in two weeks' time.